Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. As my wife loves to say, uh, luck favors the prepared. If you want to be a trial lawyer, if you want to go try a good case, you need to outwork the other side. And I think it was Russ Herman who said that one second of inspiration in the courtroom does not equal four years of perspiration. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, it's been some time, so tell everybody how you are. <laughs> give us a, give I'm, us an update of your summer. I'm good. I I, I this is a horrible. This is like a nightmare question because I can't think of anything um, cool that I did this summer. I can't think of anything. Nothing's changed. <laughs> well, we we have. Uh, um, you know, so we're doing this show. We've been off for a little bit. I, if, if our listeners have been paying attention, which hopefully they have, uh, we've had a lot of classic episodes. And uh, so we we have a few announcements to make. Uh, and we have a great show today with two great guests uh, who we've had on the show before. And that remains who, to be seen, really. And they, <laughs> they happen to be extremely easy to schedule uh, because <laughs> they're our law partners. And uh, so we have Jeff Harris and Jed Mann. So... Uh, we are glad to have them on the show, but the uh, announcement that we that we want to make sure that everybody's aware of is that we're going to take a break for a little bit. Uh, we've been doing this show for a little bit over three years, uh, pretty much straight, um, and uh, and put out a lot of shows. We are over. Uh, Yvonne, you want to take a guess how many uh, downloads we have? We're doing pretty good. Don't uh, go high though. Go low. Okay. Um, so I, can, okay. I can make it sound better. Well, 63. I know like, we were close 63. to 63, <laughs> the number 63. <laughs> I'm going to say 200,000. I mean, you're that, that is a good guess because we are at 216,000 downloads. So. You sure that's just not one kid just hitting the button over and over? Let's I mean, daughters. I, I've I have downloaded. Yeah, my my daughters, they, they don't even know I do a podcast. Yeah, that's not <laughs> So what if it is one kid, then we've inspired yeah. one future that, lawyer, Jeff. I'm true, proud of that. True, that's right. True. That's right. Exactly. But uh, but yeah, so we wanted to we, we wanted to let everybody know that we're going to take a little break for uh, essentially the rest of the year. We're, we're going to going to regroup. Uh, we have a bunch of trials coming up. Um, so uh, we're going to basically take a break until uh, 2023. And then we will make announcements when we're going to be releasing new episodes uh, we're probably going to change the format a little bit because uh, we realized as practicing lawyers that doing one episode a week is a bit much. Um, so we're probably going to do one episode every two weeks. Right, Yvonne? Is that that our... Yeah, I think so. And I also meant to tell you that I got some um, feedback that I wasn't uh, necessarily asking for, but I got some feedback about the podcast. And it was specifically that... Um, no one wants to hear the case intros from us that they want to hear from the lawyers whose cases really? they were. That's yeah. interesting. Well, well I was okay. like, anyway, yeah. so we might, there might be some things we tweak. I mean, it's tough okay. because we want it to be easy for our listeners. We want it to be easy for our guests to just jump on and not feel like they have to do homework to be on the show. Right. Um, so that's why we introduce the cases. But to those people who think that it's too much of me and Steve talking in the beginning, we've heard you. Maybe we'll tweak some of that stuff, too. We'll, ha we'll certainly have to get their permission, because I know that if we bring on uh, guests like uh, like our law partner, Jeff, uh, and then ask him to tell us what the case is about, mm -hmm. I, I don't know what we're going to get. <laughs> no, 
I think you need to have an episode where I guest host and then ask you guys everything <laughs> that you've learned from the Great Charles podcast. Well, in fact, we, I don't know. We I might mean, do that right now. That actually. is what we're doing today. <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> and the answer is what? Um, I, I actually I do want to I, I do want to uh, do one other announcement because we have talked about this on the show a little bit, and I want Raz to come on if he's there and uh, tell everybody. I have here. you have you started law school yet? Or are you what? What's what's? Uh, yes. Yeah, we started a uh, orientation last week, so this is uh our first full week and how's it going uh, it's going <laughs> yeah. it's going <laughs> i feel i feel pretty good about it i uh, i definitely made a good choice going to elon uh because they seem to have a lot of support so I, yeah i feel good but i'm Very. you know a, uh, away from the kids during the week yeah my wife and three kids so that's been the hard part i'm not no that's college. Yeah, that's I mean, I, I couldn't imagine doing law school with uh, with uh, a wife and three kids. I mean, that's uh, that, that's a lot. So, um, Raz, uh, do you have any classes that are like full on like uh, Socratic cold call? Do you oh, have any yeah. of those yet? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're just starting that. But it's uh, right now it's just like an introductory orientation, kind of getting us into the mindset of what it's trying to increase our learning curve, make our learning curve easier. Yeah. Uh, so we I'm learning about, yeah, I'm reading cases now learning about case law, learning about torts, learning about con law a little bit. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm getting into it and I understand more words. Have you, <laughs> yeah. have you, have, have you said, you have you said, really yeah, all like, it is, is words. Have, have you said that, uh, you know, I don't think this Socrates guy was that good a teacher. I mean, who came up with this method? <laughs> Not yet, but uh, I still think I made a good decision. So I'm, I'm really enjoying it. That's really all, all right. law is. It's just words you can charge for. To, that's right that's right <laughs> that's my new podcast words you can charge for words you can charge for yeah, exactly yeah. well inspirational um, well be best of luck to you raz uh we know you'll do great we know uh um uh, you know you you um we hope uh, everything goes well and you hope uh, we hope that you keep us updated on how everything's going i will i'm sure at some point i'll call you crying yeah, uh, we'll just, you know, <laughs> exactly. Just notice a moment in time. <laughs> hey, right. the fact that it hasn't happened already means you're ahead of more people than you think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, Thanks. Well, all right. Uh, let's get to the show. So, so our idea for this show, Yvonne, was what? What was our idea for this show? Um. It, uh, what was what was our idea for wait, this show? Two hundred thousand downloads, and this is the level of preparation. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. This, this <laughs> <laughs> but this is why the hiatus is needed. That's yeah. right. That's right. No, our idea for the show was uh, that we would bring Jeff and Jed on. It's and and for anybody who doesn't know, both Jeff and Jed have been, have been on the show before. Have talked uh, about some of the trials they've been involved. They're both. Uh, fantastic trial lawyers. Uh, uh, Jeff was has been on talking about the Jones versus CSX case, uh, Monday versus Ford and Sasser versus Ford. And Jed was on talking about Monday versus Ford. And then both Jeff and Jed, uh, along with uh, with Jeff's uh, much better half, Rebecca, um, were uh, on as our introduction show, sort of going through the stages of trial. Um, so uh, and if you want to look them up, go to hlmlawfirm.com. So, um, but so the the idea for the show uh, was that we were going to sort of recap uh, some of the universal principles, things that we've learned, or things that you know come out of every trial lawyer 
some of the good tips on how to try a good case. And then we are going to have uh, Jeff and Jed give their uh, wisdom on the, uh, on uh, all of those things. So um, yeah. Cause I think some of the things that we've heard, I mean, we've definitely learned to the extent that, you know, we didn't know it already that there's more than one way to skin a cat. There's more than one way to try a case. And I, you know, one of the common themes that people have been talking about is, you know, be authentic to yourself and what's going to work for you and your style. Um, but there's also some things, you know, some strategies that people have taken or things that they've done, which is, which is very different or opposite from what you're told most of the time works. Um, and so I think it's good to hear that people are doing things different ways, but that's one of the things that I want to talk about. There's some stuff that I, like go, look, thinking back on our episodes that I heard that I'm like, does that work? Yeah, that makes you, that would make me nervous. Um, yeah, so exactly. Anyway. So, I mean, and, and, and that's absolutely right. And, and the thing that I've always been struck by is that, you know, we've done more than a hundred of these episodes with trial lawyers from all over the country who've had great results and you know, when you boil it down, a lot of them are saying the same things. I mean, are saying, you know, giving similar advice and, they, and they're doing what? the same work, which is uh, no. Um, I mean, like, for instance, uh, I, I think the most important thing, that if, if there's one takeaway that we can give from this show that every trial lawyer, uh, you know, that your case uh, depends on is credibility is you have to be the most credible um, side in the courtroom. Your client has to be the most credible. Uh, if your client gets caught in a lie, if you get caught in a lie, um, you know, your case is pretty much dead. And we've said this a lot on the show. And, and this is with all due respect to uh, our opposing counsel. But uh, it seems to us that uh, plaintiff lawyers don't get to stretch the facts defense lawyers get to stretch the facts and that's okay because they're not trying to win 12 jurors. They're trying to win one juror or, you know, somebody just to create enough uh, doubt that, uh, that they're not going to find in favor of the plaintiffs. Um, so uh, to me, uh, if, if I could just say one takeaway that I think has come through most of these episodes, one takeaway that if you just had to tell one, you know, a lawyer, a young lawyer getting ready to start their trial uh, practice, you know, be credible in the courtroom. I mean, and in practice always. I mean, so that that includes with uh, with the judge, with the jury, uh, with um, the uh, courtroom staff, um, with with everybody. Uh, and that goes for your client too. absolutely uh, be credible. And that that means um, so if you have a weakness, uh, embrace that weakness and you got to talk about it. You can't pretend like it's not there. Uh, and we heard that from the very first episode that we had when we had Tommy and uh, Adam Malone on and Tommy uh, uh, talked about credibility in that episode. Um, but so I, I would say that if, if, if there is one thing that um, is most important in any trial, it comes down to credibility. Uh, Jeff, what do you think about that? Well, it's funny because I, you know, uh, I've heard you say that your entire career. I mean, you know, I, 20 years ago, I remember you saying that. And it's interesting to me that after all of these podcasts and all the various lawyers you've interviewed and, you know, all the different uh, approaches and styles that people have, you, you've, you've come back home to where you started the whole thing. So I, I find that really interesting. I mean, I think it's true. I mean, you know, I, I do agree with you that I think it's probably largely a feature of the fact that as a plaintiff's lawyer, you have to unify. 
Um, yeah. You know, you, you've got to have you got to have a unifying case because you're getting 12 people to do something that's they're disinclined to do, which is to, you know, let's just face it. I think if you just randomly pick 12 people, they're not they're not going to be inclined to find against someone and award money damages, you know, and that, that's just something that you so you've got to unify them and you have to have a theme that unifies them and all that is just so heavily predicated on on your credibility as a unifier. What are your thoughts on, you know, because I think a lot of times when we're talking about credibility and especially this context, we don't it's not like we think people are out there to lie or to hide facts. We don't. Right. It's sometimes when you don't know the facts of your case well enough, but also it's this principle that you were talking about, Steve, that if you've got, you know, if your case has warts, if you have a problem in your case, you, ideally, you want to be the one that addresses it to the jury first. You want to be honest about it and sort of take it away from the defense. Um, Jeff and Jed, what are your thoughts just as a practice pointer on, you know, how to handle that and the best time to do that? Like, let's, you know, if you've got a client that's got, you know, you've got bad facts, you've got that you have to address, you know, a client who has got had some serious pre-existing conditions or somebody who wasn't wearing a helmet or something like that, that that, you know, is going to come out when I think about it, it's like, well, you want to bring it up first, but you don't want to give too much attention to it. So do you have any tips for when and how to do it effectively? I think a lot of it is the narrative of your story. Um, I remember kind of in some of our earlier trials and throughout, um, you know, prior to Georgia changing the law in which, uh, you know, you always would have these apportionment issues that were on the, on the verdict form, um, you know, but, but when it was still truly joint and several, um, one of the things that we recognized was, you know, having our client, if they did make some mistakes, you know, come forward with it and actually not fighting to have a line on the verdict form to, uh, you know, assign fault to your own client. And I think you know, that'd be the first thing a lot of employees like, well, why would you ever want to do that? But, you know, kind of through our focus groups and through our trials, you know, not every one of our cases was going to be 100% liability. And that happens in a lot of the crash worthiness type cases. So, you know, counseling your client that you're going to ask them, you know, you know, should you have done something differently in this regard? And, you know, we, we think about, you know, um, whether you should use an emergency break in a rollaway accident involving a, in a product defect. And, you know, having a client sit up there and say, look, you know, I, I'm owning my mistake. And, you know, but you know, that should have been something that, you know, maybe they had a bad day and not walk, you know, terrible language. But that figure one was, you know, she didn't walk away. I mean, she was paralyzed for the rest of her life. And, you know, that certainly wasn't something that, you know, should have happened from her mistake. So just kind of, you know, knowing that, you know, you can admit some, you know, problems with your case or some responsibility that your client needs to make. But as long as you're comparing it, you know, to a greater, you know, harm that was done by the, the other side, I think you're in good shape. I mean, you know, if you have too many problems, you know, with your case, you know, those are ones that, you know, hopefully you're, you're, you're not taking to the courtroom that you, you know, you can get an out on. But, you know, but there's some of these some of these issues, you just got to kind of own them and deal with them, you know, directly on direct. And now, you know, I think we've, we've had experience too with clients, you know, push back, like, well, why would I ever admit I was at fault? And then when you kind of sit down and explain kind of the dynamics of, you know, how that looks compared to, you know, a defendant that is just, you know, refusing to admit anything or take any responsibility, you know, it can work out well. Um, related to that, Steve, I was thinking of, of the advice um, that a couple of our guests had, you know, one of the questions that we always ask is, um, 
you know, was your client in the courtroom every day? How did you handle your courtroom? Or, I mean, how did you handle your client? Or if it's a, a client whose testimony was difficult to present, what would you do with that? And while the majority seemed to have a lot of, um, you know, clients that were really engaged and were there a lot and, and the lawyers wanted them there because they wanted, you know, they were great people, great clients. You know, we did talk to a few people who either weren't going to put their client through it or they knew their client might have some issues. And so they thought it better not to, you know, to just not have the client in the room the whole time and sort of prepare the jury for that. That's one of those pieces of advice of advice that I heard that I that made me really nervous because I think I I would get scared that the jury would perceive the case as being, you know, lawyer driven if I don't have a client sitting there next to me. Um, so I'm interested what you guys think about that, how, you know, about not, you know, if you've got a client that has issues, whether they're physical or I'm thinking more, you know, issues you're worried about how they're going to come across to the jury about just not having someone there. So, uh, I mean, that that actually came up a lot on the podcast. And and I was uh, I, I'll, I'll be honest, I was surprised by the number of lawyers who told us that they chose not to have their client in the courtroom or just brought them in just to testify. And that and that was all because that was certainly not the way we started out practicing, uh, you know, like when we were younger and trying cases, I, I would have you know, and not had the client there. I, the, I think the one thing that we have to remember is we, we always think as lawyers that that's going to look really weird that we don't have our client in the courtroom. But what we forget is that a jury, they have no mm -hmm. idea what a, yeah. what a trial what is a normal look like. trial looks like. That's right. So if we, if we don't act like anything's out of the norm, they're not going to think anything's out of the norm. Mm -hmm. So I I've really come around on that. And, uh, and I, I would love to hear what Jeff and Jed think about, you know, and, and I think it's, I think it's a, it's, it's just a specific to each case and, and how your client is, whether or not you're going to have them in the courtroom every day. And I've certainly done it both ways in the past with, uh, mixed success both ways. Uh, there was one case where we didn't have our clients in the courtroom. And I, I don't want to say that's why we lost the case, but we did lose that case. Uh, Jed, that was one that, uh, that uh, Jed and I tried. And, and that was because we had some clients who for the, for the venue we're in, didn't look like they, they just, uh, they, they look like they might scare some of the jurors if I'm completely honest. Um, but, um, but uh, Jeff, what do you What's your thoughts on whether or not you have uh, bring the client to the courtroom every day or have them in the courtroom or just have them there for certain parts or just put them on the stand? You know, what would you? Well, I, I think it's two interrelated concepts. And the first is that most of the time in the cases that we handle, if it's a product case or if it's a, you know, a premises case or something like that, you, you want the case to be about the defendant's conduct. And you want the focus to be on the defendant's conduct and you want the jury thinking about the defendant's conduct. And if you have the client there or if you make the case too much about your client, then you run into this whole tendency that people have this, you know, and, you know, me, I've been fixated on jury heuristics for the last couple of years. But this, this tendency that people have, um, you know, called attribution, where they're going to they're going to attribute things to your client that they wouldn't attribute to themselves that are oftentimes negative. And I was I had a focus group the other day and I was struck by it. Um, you know, literally, they were blaming the client for things that absolutely the client didn't do wrong. But, you know, they were like, well, I would have never done that. And so you run into if you make the case about your client, if it's too much focused on the client, if the client's in the courtroom and is the center of attention, 
then you run in this you run into this natural tendency to attribute negative things to the client. Um, that's just the way that people sometimes see the world. So, you know, I, I think again, it's you know, it's very case specific. I mean, there's some clients that are so amazing, you want as much focus as possible on them. But in a lot of cases, the focus should be on the defendant and not the client. So it makes sense to me why people would say, well, I mean, not to be overly cynical about it, but I mean, really, the client is the vehicle by which you bring the defendant's misconduct to court to be judged. And yeah. it's really about that, uh, as opposed to, you know, your client. Now, you know, if you got a catastrophically injured child or something like that, then it becomes a whole different dynamic. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I do, I do think somebody else talked about you know, when they did have a a really good client, I, I wish I could remember who it was, Steve, but they they actually wanted, you know, they wanted the jury waiting for that moment. They wanted so much sort of suspense and attention on that moment of their client testifying right. that that was part of what was behind their decision to otherwise not have the client there at all. Right. And I think they get, you know, like with a catastrophically injured client, you know, it's, I, I mean, we've had cases where we brought them in for Vordire. And then we brought them in for their testimony and then they were there for for closing or something like that, um, you know, because it, it builds a sense of excitement. And I think people get desensitized if, you know, if it's a three week trial and they're staring at the client the whole time and they get desensitized to the significance of the injury. So it you know it makes a lot of sense to me that good lawyers really think through that and don't have the knee jerk reaction that, well, you know, I got to have my client there. I mean, I, it's to me, it's just like any other tactical decision you make at trial. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer, yes, and only getting <laughs> dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference, online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now, Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah. And I mean, LTS, I'm going to, I'm going to call them LTS because we, yes. we're on a first name basis. <laughs> you know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well, whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you, you can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, 
just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there. But they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives. And everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. I think what you said uh, earlier, Jeff, about, um, you know, making it about the defendant's conduct is really important because we all know that not only is your client under a microscope during trial, you're under a microscope. So the less things you can give the jury to focus on and start to question on your side, I mean, helps them focus on what, you know, we think where it should be focused. And it, and it does go back to this other principle that we've talked about a number of times on the show of primacy and recency in you know, the way, I mean, the, the, there are several advantages that plaintiff lawyers have uh, when we go to trial, other than the fact that we have the burden of proof and other than the fact that we have in Georgia, at least we have to get a unanimous verdict, but we get to go first. I mean, that's a huge, that is a, that is an advantage. Um, and, uh, and, and so because of that, we get to frame the case the way we think it should be framed. And, and generally, uh, I mean, there may be an exception here or there, but generally you want to frame the case in what, what was the defendant's conduct? What, what did they know? When did they know it? What did they do about it? And then what is the consequence of what they did or didn't do? And that's how you want to frame the case. Um, and, and so I can definitely see, you know, having your client there all the time could be a distraction to that. Um, you know, and we, yeah. we, we've had, we've had, um, and we've had exceptions to that. I mean, I'll say, so when I tried the um, uh, case, I've never talked about on the show, but the Jenkins case down in Bainbridge, I mean, my clients in that case were so good. I mean, having Joel Jenkins there, you know, every day there in front of the jury was just a, a bonus because he, he was, he would, both he and his wife were such powerful witnesses and, and having him there, seeing the kind of pain he was in, you know, seeing how his discomfort, I think really brought home how bad his injuries were. Um, one of the one of the things too that I think this is kind of general, but it's related to when you have something about how you're going to present your case. Like if your client's not going to be there the whole time, or if they're going to have to need to be there and leave, or if only the mom's going to be there and not the dad, or something like that. One of the things that like you do not learn in law school, and you do not learn until you see somebody try a case. Um, or you do it yourself is, is how you can prepare the jury for some of those issues in jury selection. Like when you learn about jury selection in law school, you're just learning about, you know, peremptory strikes and, and that sort of thing. And you're not bats and challenges. And you, they don't teach you at all about the things that you can actually prepare the jury for and get them to say, you know, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay with, if, if your client's not there, I, you know, you ask them if they have a problem with it and they don't raise their hand. And so then they remember that. Um, little things like that. It just, I know everybody on the podcast now knows that, but that was something I really didn't know that you could use jury selection for until I tried cases with our firm and saw how many things like that you can get the jury to acknowledge and say they're okay with and that they won't hold against you. Well, that goes back to your whole original point about, you know, credibility being the most important part or the most important facet for the lawyer. 
mean, you think about the trial, there's nothing that people have done in their life that's comparable. They don't have any personal experience that's similar to having to go through jury selection or a trial. And so if you're telling them what's going to happen and you're you're serving as as a, you know, in, on some level, you, you try to be kind of a neutral guide. I mean, you're you're always obviously an advocate. But if you're if you're telling them what's going to happen, help, helping them understand and appreciate what's going to happen in the trial. And you start doing that in Vordire and that actually happens <laughs> and it happens just like you said it was going to. And you've already told them that that's what's going to happen. You know, you're you're building credibility and they're starting to rely on you and, and trust you, which goes back to, you know, y'all's two points, which is when you start getting that credibility, the worst thing you can do is lose it by, you know, misrepresenting something or doing something that's completely false because it's almost like it hurts worse if they start to trust you and then they learn that there's a reason not to. Yeah. I, I, I want to go back to one second for, to the, to voir dire is, which is, um, we've had several lawyers on the podcast talk about the importance, you know, I, I think when we came out of law school uh, and you thought you were picking a jury, then you thought you were basically trying to convince the jury to your side mm -hmm. of the facts at, the old, at that time. Way. Yeah. Right. And, and, but you know, how really what you want to do is, is to get them talking, get them, um, you know, uh, and then figuring out, you know, whether or not they can be a fair and impartial juror and, and whether or not there's any, um, uh, any reason for cause on that. I think Jim Gilbert uh, actually um, gave some really good advice on that as far as how to pick a jury and, and how, you know, if you're picking a jury right, you should be doing the, um, you know, uh, least amount of talking, which is, uh, which, which we all love Jim, but uh, that's surprising for Jim because he loves to talk. Um, <laughs> well, I'm, but, I'm uh, curious <laughs> about that. You know, of all, of all the people you guys have interviewed, were there people that still held to the kind of old school model of, Vordire, where you're trying to argue your case and trying to convince people and all that sort of stuff, or is it sort of universally recognized now that that's not, not that's not effective? I think, uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Yvonne, but I think if, I don't remember anybody coming out and saying that they were trying to win their case in Vordire anymore, and and or trying to. Um, now they may have talked about how, I mean, okay, one thing that they did talk a lot about, um, you know, is that you might want to start the process of anchoring you know in yeah. Dyer. you want to start yeah, talking that's... about concepts that you want to you want to get in there but but nobody was talking i don't remember anybody talking about how you know they're trying to win the jury over in the, i mean at, at that time you're trying to make you know a connection with them well you yeah, still see it, a lot of defense lawyers doing it i mean yeah, to me yeah 100 percent. i mean the I, that's the one thing I think we still we heard a lot of was about priming people for the damages, getting them used to hearing the numbers early. But, um, you know, but the other thing is we had so many people on who they're either they get almost no Vordire or it's like the judge isn't there and it's done in the hallway, you know, like it's like that part to me is kind of bonkers. Like I still can't that, really. That That's still so like in New York, that that blows my mind that you're There's no judge there. For they, they do it in the hallway. It's lawyers basically arguing over jurors right there in the hallway and questioning them then. And then if they have something they can't decide, then they'll go run and talk to the judge and try and get a decision and then run back out to the hall. It's I've I've never. I've I mean, never experienced I, anything I'm like, like breaking that. into a sweat just thinking about that. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe it's beneficial because maybe you have. I mean, that's one of the problems with the way we do more dire here. To me, it's so stiff that you know a lot of times you don't have any rapport. So maybe mm -hmm. if you can 
corner them in the hallway, you get a, you get a, <laughs> a yeah. more honest answer. I don't know. Yeah. Well, speaking of practice point or just kind of bringing it together with what you're saying about bringing your client or not, um, two things that, uh, or that's happened now two times in cases where, uh, we weren't going to have a, uh, uh, a client at Vordire. I've seen defense like in catastrophic cases asking the court um, to be able to play a portion of the day in the life video. Um, the rationale being that, you know, well, they may not know Miss Smith or Miss Jones by name, but, you know, they may have seen her, you know, in the community or their kids may go to school with them and not know them. So we need to show this, this portion of the video. And what became very clear one time, we ended up reaching a compromise where we just showed a picture um, but you know, what was very obvious, what ended up happening was then there was this narrative from the defense during, you know, their portion of board ire about how you know catastrophic this young child's injuries were. And they were using that as a, a way to try to get, you know, people that would, you know, be sympathetic off, you know, can, can, you know, can, can you possibly imagine sitting and determining the fate of the healthcare of a child that, you know, will never be able to talk or never be able to eat on their own and all these things. And it became very clear that they wanted to show those types of things, which were in our day in the life video. And, and it did cause several, uh, you know, jurors to self detonate and, uh, you know, end up being, you know, dismissed for cause um, that, you know, and I thought it was pretty effective to be honest by the defense yeah, in, and it, in that and way. It's, and, but, it's, and it's fair. I mean, you know, frankly, yeah. it's fair game to me. If you show a picture of a catastrophic client and somebody burst into tears you know, right. I mean, as much right. as I want that juror on my jury, I mean, if I'm being intellectually honest, it's, it, I think it's probably a fair approach for the defense. Yeah. No, but I mean, I think in some ways, <clears> over <throat> the knee jerk being just, well, I'm just not going to have my, my client there for the board ire. I mean, I think even, you know, sometimes, you know, showing that video or showing that picture may even make it worse. Um, you know, so yeah. just kind of keep that in mind. Maybe you do need them there at least that morning, just so you can check the box, you know, for the argument that, you know, we'll judge it. You know, the jury's got to have a, a face to uh, to match up with this unknown, you know, client's, um, you know, name, because otherwise, you know, they can't be properly, you know, vetted. Do they know them or, you know, have it, you know, prior interactions with them, which I think it's hard. I think it's a legitimate thing, you know, to, to say, you know, if they haven't seen a picture of somebody. So, you know, um, I certainly would never want, you know, my day in the life video or your client's day in life video to be playing during board hire, you know, the sympathy type aspect of things. And then it also takes away, you know, your you know, some of your zing for when you want it for your case um, as well, too. They're kind of desensitized to it. Let's move yeah. on. Let's move on to another phase or our whole episode is going to be about the, uh, <laughs> the well, first half day of trial. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think we've actually covered a lot of, uh, I mean, you know, several areas that uh, with that discussion, um, you know, what I'll, I'll, I'll move it to a section that I, that I really like. It's it to me, it's one of the most, uh, engaging and fun parts of trial. And that is lunch. The yes. The lunch. That's right. Uh, you don't eat. First of all, you know, don't eat lunch. I, know. I was going to say, so. yeah, lunch is like, you know, jamming a sandwich down your throat while you're yeah. trying to prepare. Um, but, um, no, is, is the creativity side of it, like, you know, coming up with the story or the demonstratives, like how you're going to, you know, what you're going to put together there. And we've had, uh, some fantastic uh, uh, people on the show talk about the work they did on demonstratives. And I'll just give a few examples. But um, like, for instance, I remember uh, uh, Karen Kohler, who tried the duck boat case out in, in Seattle or out in Washington. And, uh, and I, I, I think it was like a $120 million verdict. Uh, but she did her entire opening wearing a, a captain's hat and a duck whistle. And she was and she was basically telling the story from the from the standpoint of the captain 
and what the captain was doing of the boat and what he and obviously what he didn't do right and what he did wrong but i just thought that was really interesting um and then i and then i also think about um uh chris stewart when he tried the um uh he tried the rape case down in south georgia where they they had given a um uh, a key card a motel key card out to somebody who wasn't a who wasn't staying in that room and then that person used the card to go in and and uh rape and molest a, a woman and so he had gotten a whole bunch of these key cards and you know and his closing argument was just basically talking about how they just give these key cards out to everybody and he's just like throwing these key cards around the room and so that by the time that he's done with his closing like there's the floor is just covered with key cards but um, and then, of course, my favorite uh, my, my favorite story of all is uh, is from your case, Jeff, the uh, case where uh, when Andy Scherfius was cross examining uh, the biomechanic in the Sasser versus Ford case. And then uh, the at least the, the biomechanic was testifying that it was uh, a 45 pound seat wouldn't cause a spinal cord injury to a six year old girl, um, you know, in, a, in this crash. And so Andy sneaks into the courtroom his 45 pound uh weight holds it over his head asks the bio, the biomechanic to come down into in front of the jury so that he can drop it on his back and see if it's going to hurt his back since since the biomechanic didn't think it was going to hurt so things like that um yeah i i love demonstratives i love creativity what 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 uh i'd love to hear your guys thoughts on on that and how you can use that at trial but there's there's, there's so many good stories on on how uh, some, you know, a lawyer can be creative. And and to me, that's one of the fun parts of trial is like how you're going to, how you're going to put it together. Yeah. I mean, let, let's just face it. The way that the evidence comes in is pretty boring. And, um, you know, if you can do something to distill evidence um, or especially on cross, which was what was so effective about what Andy did in that case is, you know, this biomechanic drones on for hours about force vectors and all this other stuff. But the crux of his point was, you know, there's not enough force and 20 or 45 pounds of weight to break somebody's back. And to to dis distill the cross down to one demonstration that effectively is what makes being a really good trial lawyer. I mean, you know, that that's that that to me, that's what defines a great trial lawyer. So I love that stuff, too. Um, I'm curious, like, did, did y'all talk much about, you know, visual demonstratives, because that's something that also seems to be evolving a lot in terms of, you know, how people are using boards and what they're doing yeah. and all that. I'm, I'm, what, what, what seemed to be the trend on kind of new techniques for demonstratives like that? Well, I mean, the one thing I can say is that it, all, I think one theme that runs through all of the lawyers who they're, they're all incredibly creative and, um, and try and come up with new ways to try cases and new ways to demonstrate. So they're, they're all always thinking about um, demonstratives. I, um, one thing that I thought as far as like, you know, animations, videos, uh, the um, case that I got ready to try earlier this year, where we wanted to show uh, how bad our client's knee was crushed. Uh, I used a, a firm that I found through the podcast after talking to one of the lawyers who uh who had used the animation had used this animation company um and then um and then of course i um yvonne do you remember uh i think it was jay vaughn um and ronald johnson talked about how they were able to get their boards 
first of all, they use a graphic designer and not a company. And this is no slight on any of the trial uh, graphic companies, but they didn't go the traditional route of, of hiring a trial graphic company. They just got a graphic designer. I've who, always wondered about that. I yeah. mean, that, you know, somebody yeah, I, creative that if, yeah. and just to kind of let their, their creative juices flow and say, Hey, you know, this is what I'm trying to prove. What do you think? Well, yeah, it, I think and, it, go ahead. Am I? Well, no, I was going to say, I think it might have even been a student. And so they had a ton of boards made, um, but that made it way more affordable. And were they the ones, Steve, that had the idea of um, they had like little cutouts made of like people's witnesses faces for like who said what? And so they would just put that on the boards. They they had taken the uh, they had taken from the the depositions the um, the you know the face of a witness and then they made them into magnets and then they could just move them around the boards and be like you remember when this guy said this and they put his you know magnet face up there it was um, so smart yeah. and 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 that that to me surprised me more that we did see a lot of cool animations we saw a lot of cool powerpoints um, but I, I think what we heard the most from a lot of people is is similar to, I think, how how we feel at our firm when we're trying a case, is, case which is you still have to have some really good physical boards. Um, and everybody's favorite thing to do still seems to be using uh, the defense's uh, boards or <laughs> demonstratives. That, that's always fun. Yeah, there, there's, there's nothing more fun than using their demonstratives. So, yeah. yeah. Um, but there was a lot of I there was a lot of preference out there for for a flip chart or yeah, um, just having a ton chart. of boards. Well, yeah. it, it, I mean, what, what I honestly like, and I think a lot of lawyers is, is, is like a combination of everything. Like that way you can sort of use uh, a flip chart when you want to use a flip chart and then, or use it or pull out the board when you got the board and, or, you know, you have, you know, a PowerPoint, it may not, may, maybe not a structured PowerPoint, although some people use that very effectively, but just where able, where you can pull up exhibits, you know, but I, I've always enjoyed just having sort of like a mix of all of those things and then kind of going back and forth. And I help, I think it helps keep the jury engaged into, um, um, you know, into what's going on. And then I, I should mention, even though he only his daughter was a was a, a guest on the show, Rachel Lanier. But I did see Mark Lanier talk one time about how he likes to go to like toy stores right before trial. And uh, just he has, has like a bag. He'll have like a like a plastic bin of like toys underneath the, his uh, his desk at trial. And then he'll just start pulling them out for different points he wants to make with different witnesses. And so it becomes like this thing at trial where, you know, the jury just wants to see what he's going to pull out next. And uh, and I think yeah. it's I think it's a great idea. So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic, and it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the Internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that Digital Law Marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. 
Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie yeah. cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website, and you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. I kind of feel like we've already reached where stuff like screen stuff is going to be as useful as it can be. And now I think it backfires because people look at screens all day. So... I actually think that stuff that's there and then it disappears. Um, I don't really like that anymore. I think like what at conferences, I think people listen less when you have a PowerPoint. They don't listen to what you're talking about. Yeah, I, I, agree. I just feel like there's too many screens now in people's faces all the time. They see that stuff and it disappears and it disappears from their brains. Yeah, the, the PowerPoint filled with a bunch of words, I think, has really gotten to be pretty ineffective. Which, yeah, which you do, you know, which is funny whenever you go to trial and you see a defense lawyer, because generally that's who will do it. You see them pull up and they'll just have a bunch of words on there. And I'm like, I, you know, yeah. are they really seven bullet points? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and I get why it's important, but like the next time you go to a conference, I just did this at a conference I went to. I looked around and the speakers who had PowerPoints, everybody was looking at the PowerPoints instead of the speaker. Um, and I think they, they weren't listening as much to the speaker and, you know, I guess that's fine, but I don't think they're really remembering what's on the PowerPoint for the most part either. So, so what about damages? Um, what's, what's the current, what's the trend? What's y'all's takeaway on lessons learned about damages? So, uh, the things that I uh, remember, I mean, there, there's a number of lawyers who talked about it. I specifically remember, uh, I think it was, uh, Jeff Kroll or Jeffrey Kroll out of Chicago who talked about just, how much anchoring they did with you know his his client it, his case he was actually on the show twice i think and but one of his cases was where a um a young woman was waiting at the airport uh underneath like one of these uh shelters that, so that if it snows or rains and it, a gust of wind came up and it basically blew the shelter over on top of her and paralyzed her um, but he but he really uh, talked a lot about the concept of anchoring uh of just you know letting the jury know, you know, either, you know, how much you, you think the case is worth right from the beginning, or at least a range, you know, and then kind of weaving that in all the way through Voidire, opening, you know, direct, closing, you know, so that by the time it, it be, and, it, and it really does make sense, because uh, I, I'll, I'll never forget one case I tried when I was, um, when I was a brand new lawyer, and I've, I was in a very conservative venue, and it, but it was a tough case. And I felt like it was going really good the whole time until in closing, I told the jury how much I, uh, you know, what I viewed the value of the case was. And that was the first time I had told him that. And I could literally just see them shut down in front of me. 
And, um, and so I, I learned in that case, a very hard lesson. Like I, I'm never going to save my, you know, what, what my ask is going to be till the very end. I'll, I'll at least give uh, a range. So I would say anchoring uh, is a big part of it. A, another big discussion and actually helped uh, our law partner, Andy Kahn, in his uh, latest trial, which is, you know, when do you use medical bills? Do you put them in or do you just have or do you just, um, you know, have the clients and the before and after witnesses talk about how bad the damages are or the doctors? What What do you all think about that? Well, and, and related to that, you know, in a wrongful death case, do you put up economic damages? Because to right. me, I mean, I've really reached a point in my life where I think that 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 anchors the jury to the economic mm -hmm. numbers. And you can you can try to explain it. And I've tried, I think, every way possible to explain that there's a huge difference between economic and non-economic. But once they see this report, you know, it's hard for them not to just sort of go back to that and say, well, you know, here's the economic damages. And so, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think, you know, that what, what what did anybody else talk about that, about whether they just don't use economic damages in wrongful death cases? I don't I don't remember that, Yvonne, if anybody said they don't use it. I mean, I, there's certainly a lot of people, you know, who talked about like how they would try to um, how, how they would try to, uh, you know, quantify damages or how they would try and come up with with what the damages they were going to ask. And one thing I, I do remember um, and I always liked it is uh, is was Bill Stone that he's in his one of his trials. He said he when he was trying to get the jury to calculate damages for like a, a length of time is he asked for um, the least amount of money for the least amount of time that was his saying least amount of money for the least amount of time and what he was saying was he wanted one penny for every second of what it was and then and then that's what he used but it but the way he and was so. able to tell that to the jury is like i'm going for the absolute least i'm going i'm asking for the least amount for the least amount of time so he's so it, you know it i thought it was a great way to say it yeah, because like he's yeah yeah so. when we did hear a lot of this you know we heard a lot of you know one ad stuff per diem stuff for the people that were definitely able to talk about it some people weren't allowed to talk about depending on their jurisdiction weren't allowed to suggest numbers um, some people, the, the measure was different, you know, for people who were allowed to ward for grief and that sort of thing, which we can't do in Georgia, grief of the survivors. And so they were kind of talking about different concepts. Um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting that um, I think it was Nathan Worksman and John Davidi, I think, um, but they they had a lie. It was not a liability admitted case, but they had a really strong case on liability. And in their um, opening, they actually led with damages. And this it wasn't a wrongful death case. It was somebody who had survived. Um, and I, was was it them, Steve? It, it was like a dog bite case. Um, I think so. <laughs> the meds were low. I know it's hard. The the, yeah. the meds were the specials were low. But anyway, it's it doesn't get to the point necessarily of anchoring so much as because they led with it and and talked about it a while and talked about the future impairment and the scarring and all this stuff you actually i feel like as a juror they were like well we have to award something it's just a matter of what even though it was not a liability admitted case they hit liability second um in the opening and i just thought it was really interesting obviously it has to be like a I think only a specific case that that works in, but you know, we read a lot of transcripts and reading that transcript, it just felt totally different and, and fresh. It was interesting. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, in, in some of these trials that you, that you read about where there's been a, 
issue preclusion or, you know, it's a bifurcated trial where they've had to come back with a second jury because of, you know, maybe there was a, a legal issue that went up on appeal and they came back and, you know, basically, you know, lot, you know, they get to stand up there and, you know, liability's already been determined and your case is just about damages, you know, seeing how people have, you know, argued those and, you know, it takes a different, you know, potential case, you know, and I guess there's one going on right now um, being tried in Gwinnett where, you know, liability has been determined by the court for a sanction against Ford, um, you know, just how that, you know, changes the dynamic. Have you guys had trials where, you know, or, or people on where they, they, they've talked about, well, look, you know, we can't do our normal thing as far as polarizing and making it about the defense's conduct because of how the case, you know, was, you know, positioned at that time and, you know, what did they do and how did it turn out? Yeah, I guess so it's I, on the podcast I, turned out pretty well, but yeah. Yeah, I, well, actually, you know, you say that. I will say that we did have a couple of people come in and talk about cases where they where it didn't go as well as they thought it. But um, but yes, but so Jed, are you asking about where it, where there's like liabilities admitted and it's just a damages only case and and essentially the the defense is doing that as a tactic to try and keep the damages down? Yeah, but I mean, like, my, I mean, we all hear about you know. It's easy to think of, you know, an admitted liability case in like the motor vehicle context, but, you know, in particular where, you know, I think a juror is going to be skeptical of an admitted liability if it's, you know, a tire defect or, you know, a medical malpractice. I think they're going to, you know, innately get that something's gone on before why the other side, you know, is not being allowed to put up a defense um, and just how, you know, that changing of the fact, you know, has, you know, impacted how, how people tried the case or how they, you know, you know, saw their damages. I mean, because I mean, like, like, you know, I mean, I think obviously the, one of the hardest things to do is if it's truly an admitted liability case and you got somebody that's remorseful on the defense side, you know, that makes our job a lot harder. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, in a corporate case, you know, you know, sometimes that happens because of a sanction, but, you know, that you're generally not going to have a product manufacturer admitting that, you know, their product was defective, especially when it's still in the market today. Um, so, but, you know, that, that does kind of happen in trial at times. I, I remember, and it, this has been uh, one that was so long ago now, but I, I think Brian Panish uh, tried a, I think it was some sort of a motorcycle collision case, um, and it was an admitted liability case. And he sort of came up with this concept of that, that essentially that they were doing that to try and pull something over on the jury and and was able to convince the jury that like, and, and I may be telling this wrong, Yvonne, correct me if I, if, but but it was basically that, that don't let the don't let the defense get away with pretending like they're taking responsibility because they're really not. That was kind of the concept of the way he tried that case and, and got a very good result, especially if they litigated the case for, you know, typical stuff where they litigate the case for four years and then right on the eve of trial admit liability. I mean. Yeah, yeah I yeah. think the only the only other thing that we heard really in that context, I think we didn't really talk about issue preclusion or things like that too much. I think we talked to a couple of people who were really allowed to hammer something because something had been produced last minute or, or um, misstated at trial, but probably most of the time when we were talking about it was, it was admitted liability. And usually those lawyers did feel like it hurt their ability to get the, the maximum amount of damages because they couldn't really talk about a lot of the conduct. So I feel I feel ter- I feel terrible, Yvonne, in because I can't give these lawyers credit because I just can't remember their names right now. But who are the lawyers who tried the case where the guy was in the bathroom and then he got sprayed with um like by Orkin with uh yeah. with, with and they and they they killed his sense of taste and smell 
and they got a, a great verdict for for basically a guy who lost his his ability to to taste and smell. And he was like a uh, was he like a, a sommelier or something like that, like a wine expert? Or, and, and so like he the argument was that the the smell and and taste was so important to his whole career. I I wish I could remember who. Yeah, the, I am that, like that frantically scrolling. Case. Yeah. But um, but anyways, I thought that was like the way they were able to just, you know, bring home to the jury, you know, how important those senses were. Um, and I, 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 I don't I, I wish I, I wish I had that in front of me. I think the verdict was like 12 or 14 million dollars for that. But yeah, um, I'm like scrolling, well, scrolling. If Jed had been on there, that would have been a hundred million dollar verdict. <laughs> right. Take away Jed's barbecue. Wait, wait, I found what it. Else is there? Um, who, who is it about? Brian, Brian Brighter and Chance Pardon. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They, that, that was uh, that was great work on that case. Um, uh, yeah. But yeah, to, to really get the jury to, uh, to understand that. But, you know, I feel like Jeff, the consensus was that everybody felt like that, like that it's hard for all of us to really talk about money a lot of times in those cases or, it, mm-hmm. but like that the error is always not talking about it enough, not spending enough time on it, not asking for enough money seem to be the consensus, even though we feel like we get up there and we feel like we talk about it a lot or we feel like we're asking for a lot. Most people say we've got to spend more time on it, got to ask for more. I, I should also mention, uh, I think it was Eric Fong who had a, um, uh, it was a brain injury case of, of a client who was beaten at a convenience store. But I'll never forget that he he was basically, he was basically telling that you know you have to absolutely believe in what you're talking. This kind of goes back to credibility, um, and he he absolutely believed in the number he was going to ask the jury for, and he came up with ninety one million dollars, and the jury awarded him awarded ninety one million dollars. Um, but it was but you know he was very big on the concept of like you know if you don't believe in what you're asking for, then you know you can't do it. I mean, so you gotta you you gotta absolutely believe and and be behind. And I guess that goes. That, that goes to the credibility. I mean, that, that goes to a number of things that I think that that we know to be true and that we hear about how, you know, you, you have to you have to have passion in your case. You have to be passionate for your client. Uh, I've said it a, a bunch of times. If you don't look like you care about your case, then the jury sure isn't going to care about your case. So uh, you need to you need to be passionate for your client. But um, what have you guys um, seen? Sorry. What, yeah. what have you guys seen as far as not, you know, not necessarily anchoring by, you know, getting them used to the number, but as far as people using creative, um, you know, facts from their case to help, you know, illustrate, you know, the number that they were coming up with. You know, you know well, pull, it, in other words, trying to pull a financial value from something else that came up in trial that might be unrelated yeah. um, or loosely, only loosely related to the damages and saying, look, this is how we're going to calculate non-economic value or time value. Yeah, I mean, the, well, Bill Stone's example is one um, of, of how he did that. And then, uh, I, as Yvonne said, that um, it's an oldie but a goodie. But the but the you know wanted ad in the in the newspaper. It's the re- I mean, the reason why I think a lot of lawyers use it is because it works. I mean, it's just it's, it's, a, it's, it's very a little uh, it's a little sensitive for Jed and I because uh, right. that case where we where we did something similar down in Columbus, and you right. know. And the jury awards this one year and they don't understand they're supposed to multiply at times, you know, the life expectancy of the decedent. So we got we got one year of benefits from the one. ad, <laughs> but, 
I mean, but, but if you read the ad closely, right, okay, right, right, yeah, exactly. This is a lifetime job. This isn't. Right. This isn't just a temp temp uh, it's job. Not a temp. It's not. It's not. It's not Christmas work. <laughs> but yeah, it's, that that's why those per diem things scare me to death. Because if it gets too complicated, yeah, you know, yeah, then. Um, I'm trying, I mean, the, the, you know, we heard so many different ways to present damages and, and, you know, and how, uh, how lawyers and, and not all of them worked. I mean, you know, and, and, uh, you know, we, we heard, you know, some that didn't, some that didn't, but why don't you have a, a, a season called, um, bad trials. Podcast <laughs> exactly. Come in and talk be about because, speak because strangely enough, it's hard it, it, as as hard as it might be to get lawyers to talk about their their victories. Well, it's even harder to get them to talk about their losses. And then, well, also the marketing <laughs> of that's probably a little tough. Right, right. <laughs> it's like, hey, we're going to call this a loserville, <laughs> loser, uh, <laughs> loser trials podcast. <laughs> you uh, know, that's when you learn. That's when you right. learn when you yeah, mess no, stuff up. So true. I I know, but it but man, it doesn't have to hurt so much to learn that yeah. way. Don't you don't you don't have to tell me first my first ever trial I was I was crying in the the DeKalb County uh, State Court bathroom in the on the first day. <laughs> you mean before anything had happened? Is that because you've blown all those depot designations? Is that what you're talking about? One, one, <laughs> one. But it was the first witness. I don't think we're supposed to turn this into a firm meeting. Um, <laughs> all so, right. Sorry. All right. <laughs> um so uh so Yvonne what were some of the others I mean we we sort of came up with a list of things that that sort of ran as themes throughout there I mean of course um you know as uh as as my wife loves to say uh luck favors the prepared um you know if you want to be a trial lawyer if you want to go try a good case you need to outwork the other side and I think it was Russ Herman who said that um that one second of inspiration in the courtroom does not equal four years of uh, perspiration. Um, yeah. So don't don't Here's, think you're just going to come in there and just come up with something and 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 yeah. pull it out of your uh, backside. Yeah. You know. Here's here's one that resonated with me personally that I really have to work on. And Jeff and I were talking about this in a different context about you know when you're when you're in a conversation with somebody, do you listen or do you wait for your turn to talk? I typically wait for my turn to talk. Um, I think anybody who listens to the podcast knows that. Hence um, the podcast. Right. But but what a lot of one of the common themes that you noted that we talked about was the importance of really listening closely, not just to your witness, but um, like I am very guilty of when I'm doing all the things that I can on my trial team and it's the defense closing, you know, I'm listening or defense opening, whatever. I'm listening, but I'm I'm doing other things too, right? I'm thinking is the witness in the hallway? Are we going to start today? Are we going to start tomorrow? I'm checking the video for, for the millionth time because I messed it up that one time and ended up crying in the bathroom of the courthouse. <laughs> I'm doing all those things, right? But, but it, 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 Jeff, it's making me think of how many times have we had people cry, on our team cry at trial because we, we, we started. That was the, I think that was the only time. Well, no, we, we, we had one, uh, we had one tech uh, who uh, I don't think ever worked any trials again oh, after right, they worked with us. Right. Well, um, anyway, what I was going to say is we, we heard from more than one person that what they like to do is listen very closely to what defense says they're going to yes. show an opening and then absolutely blast them for each one of those things that they don't end up doing. Yeah. Um, and and that that importance of, of listening when it's really your moment where it, you'd like to really prepare for the next thing that that just listening. It's so it sounds so easy, but for me, it's so hard. 
Yeah, uh, I um, especially go with ahead, witnesses. Jeff. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I I totally agree with you. And like with witnesses, you know, I I really try to listen carefully because there's so many little words that that people will say. You know, like when someone says, "Uh, well, do you remember this?" Well, not at this time. You know, these little right equivocation words that give you an opening that the witness might not being might not be being credible but you know most of that stuff you're thinking about your next question you know you're going to miss a lot of those little nuances yeah it i mean it's to me it's so important i mean and we've heard people talk about it i mean whether you're in 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 water whether you're um in in opening or with a witness i mean that's one thing that i i think that um that most trial lawyers who are successful do well I, i i think i feel like we do well which is that we we don't get so trapped in our directs or cross exams, you know, on what we want to do that we can't change with what you know it, it, what what the witness is saying and go down some new uh, avenue. I'm sorry, um, I'm sorry, I wasn't listening. What did you yeah, say? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I mean, um, the last but, podcast, okay? But, but, yeah, jokes. Yeah, exactly. It's not, it is not the last podcast. It's the sure, it's, whatever. It's, huh? a, it's a break. It's a break. Did you air quote hiatus? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but but I, I will say back to the opening. Um, yeah, I I always try to make it a a uh, habit to write down or or again to get a transcript of every single thing the defense says because to me this it, it all goes back to the credibility thing, which is. Not only are we, you know, we wanting to be the most credible uh, people in the courtroom, but if the defense, you know, exaggerates something, if they make a mistake, if they don't tell the facts right, well, then, yeah, I want to make sure I bring that up to the to the jury um, because that undermines their credibility. Um, and so it, 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 it to me, it all comes back to the, the credibility battle in the courtroom and, who, and which side is more credible. Yeah, I have a, a question. I've been I had to speak on this topic the other day, and it it is something I've been thinking about. But you know, if you have to pick an expert witness, what's the most effective expert witness? Is it someone who may not have the best qualifications or credentials, uh, who's likable, who can communicate, or do you always go with the stacked, you know, Harvard educated, huge CV? What did you, was there any discussion in the podcast talking about, you know? experts and how because i think about that a lot in in my trial looking back on things you know we may have picked experts because they were stacked and they weren't great communicators and if i had it to do over again i think i'd pick somebody who wasn't quite as qualified but you know who the jury just liked you you mean who is who is equally qualified but just happens to be better at telling the story no yeah i mean we talked about experts not quite as (laughs) good you know what's interesting steve is we didn't talk about experts retained experts very much and i think that's because i think i think part of that is because what we talked way more about if it came to expert testimony was when people were lucky enough to have a good treater um who was who was engaged with the patient like i i feel like we we rarely heard anybody who i mean we heard people who talk nicely about their experts but yeah it was not not that it it was the linchpin of the case no i well i don't i mean we know this i mean maybe we haven't said this before i i rarely think experts are the linchpin of the case i mean now every once in a while there are experts who are really good and or uh conversely really bad um you know, and, and that that can hurt, but uh, or or it can be really good. But I, I 
And I, and I, you know, and I know, and just talking to jurors after trials and you ask them about experts, they're like, yeah, we, we figured you'd have some, they'd have some, we really wanted to hear what the plaintiff said. We really wanted to hear, you know, what the other evidence was. Um, I, if you were to, the question you asked Jeff, just asking, you know, my thoughts on it, I generally think you want to go with the person who's better in front of the jury. I mean, who's, who's going to be, um, a better witness and who's going to be more likable, more credible, not necessarily the one who's got all of the, um, you know, all, all of the, uh, uh, Ivy league, but that, that, that could just be my bias because uh, no Ivy league school ever looked at me and never <laughs> wanted to. Touch well, and me. I also think, <laughs> yes. I think what your, your experience with on the podcast talking about experts, you know, we also need to spend a lot less time putting them up. We need to spend a lot less time qualifying them and we need to spend a lot less time cross-examining them. I mean, you know, if, if it's just going to be kind of a dog fall, yeah. You know, why, why do we spend days on it? And that goes back to the whole credibility problem is the jury just getting frustrated about well, some part of the trial that really isn't mm -hmm. that significant to them. When mm -hmm. we and we have to remember that, um, you know, they're, they're just like us. I mean, they don't want to sit there and listen to some guy talk for hours. And, you know, and I, and I think a lot of lawyers get stuck in that where they think they've got to do everything through this one expert. And I don't I don't think that's a, a fact at all. And in fact, uh you know, Jeff, uh, Monday versus Ford, I think is a great example of that. You remember our engineering expert in that case thought he was going to be up on the stand for days. And we told him he was going to be on the stand for an hour. And he didn't like that. But yeah. he went on the stand for an hour. And he was great. And it, it was a good result for the for the case. Um, yeah, but he um, said he'd never been on the stand for less than a day. <laughs> Right, right. And but you remember he he had lawyers after that trial call us to you know talk about how to direct him at trial because he liked the way we did it. So right. tell him he's know. got an hour and it'll right. get to the yeah. point. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But the treater thing scared me. I mean, it 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 scared me because I, I think we've all been in the situation where you have a treating physician who's just really busy or their office is really hard to work with. They're really hard to get a deposition of. They don't want to do the deposition. They don't want to come to trial. And it's not that they don't care about the patient, but they just don't see the need for having to do all that other stuff. And it just it just made me realize how rare those engaged treaters are. And so many people did give props to treating physicians in terms yeah. of their trial results. Well, it, because it's to me, it's just like a uh, it, like, for instance, in a in a um, in a road wreck case, you, you know, you can bring in an accident reconstructionist and you can bring in an engineer who's going to give you all the science behind it. But if the police officer is really good, that's I mean, that's who the jury's going to listen to. Mm -hmm. And so same thing with the doctor. You know, if you have a treating physician who's who was there actually treating the patient right and doing good. the surgery yeah, yeah. That, they're going to listen to that person over some expert who's reviewed the yeah. file or you know is being paid you know 500 dollars an hour to you know come in and you know uh, help the defense or help the or help the plaintiff I mean, yeah so, yeah so i guess just as a you know as a practice pointer for people if you get involved early enough or if you can start to build a relationship with a treater that where they're not going to be you know where you're not just calling them to schedule their deposition and they don't know who the hell you are. I mean, if you can put more work in the front end to maybe get a better relationship with them, then it can really pay off. Good advice. Yeah. Tips. So, um, well, I, I mean, I think we've, uh, I think we've hit a lot, uh, you know, I, I think we should uh, end what we've been talking about on uh, another thing. And, and Ravon, if you can remember specific facts from our podcast, but one thing I think that as trial lawyers, we need to remember 
is that, I mean, because what we do is hard and, um, and, you know, when you're in trial, you're uh, not getting any sleep, you're not eating well, um, you know, you, you don't feel that great. Um, so is we, you know, have fun where you can. Um, so, uh, it, it, as much as, as we can encourage lawyers do your job, but, you know, have fun with it. And that means like in front of a jury, if you make mistake, make a joke about it. But I want to, I want to talk a little bit about our firm, which is something that we do to have fun, uh, which is where we usually try to come up with a word uh, during trial and, um, and then try and work it into the case somehow. Like so, duodenal uh, bulb. Like duodenal it. bulb is one. Yes. Yeah. Very, <laughs> yeah. very difficult. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. So, uh, or, or Jed, uh, like football bat. I remember you working that into a trial one time. <laughs> That's easy. Come yeah. on. Yeah. Well, I, I'll tell you one. Describing and, our client's spine, according to the defense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah and I, I, the football bat. I, uh, I'll, I'll tell you one, and I'm not going to tell you where it comes from. And, and this is going to hurt our PG rating, but, uh, one that I worked into trial, uh, was fisting. We worked that in <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I, and I worked wow. it in during, during closing argument by saying in, in that case, the defendant had been taking a lot of opioids and that's why he was high driving his car. And when he hit our client. And so I told the jury that he was fisting these opioids into his mouth one after another. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, pretty impressive. Um, but no, so, so the important thing is, is, you know, do your work, uh, you know, uh, be passionate for your client, but at the end of the day, you gotta, you gotta try and have some fun with yeah. it because don't take um, yourself too seriously. Yeah, that, absolutely. That, is a, that yeah. is, that is a chronic problem. I think in our profession with, with some of our brethren and, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and they know who they are, although they probably don't now that I'm thinking. Yeah, they probably it. don't. <laughs> right, right. But exactly. <laughs> no. And, and related, related to that point. I mean, the jury sees so much more than you, they think you're going to see, including like, I won't name names. It's not somebody at our firm, but like how you're speaking, how you're turning around and speaking to your associate or your paralegal when they're in the room. I mean, mm -hmm. they see all of that stuff. So if you look like you're having a miserable time, they're going to know. You know, it's funny. I read an article by a judge the other day that was talking about like the attributes of great trial lawyers that that judge had seen in uh, his courtroom. And number one on the list, he said, was that great trial lawyers are unfailingly polite to everyone, including the other side. Right. And, you know, people in the courtroom and all that sort of stuff that, so the whole notion that in order to be a great trial lawyer, you have to be an asshole. You know, the judge was just like, no, I mean, the, they're generally the staff loves great trial lawyers because they're nice to them. And, you know, the other side likes them. And so that that's something the jury definitely picks up on. And I mm -hmm. think yeah, know, people need to remember that, especially younger lawyers. You don't have to be a tool. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I will. I wanted to point out when you said that, Yvonne, about what the jury picks up on is I'll I'll never forget Jeff uh, and, and Jed. We were uh, trying the uh, necrotizing fasciitis case in the one uh, practice group that showed up. They would bring in a different uh, representative every day and they kept like uh, playing on their iPad or their iPhone or whatever. Clearly, we're not paying attention to the trial. And, uh, and I remember our opposing counsel who had one of the other defendants kept mentioning that he was trying to distance himself from them. Right. Uh, but but it was like, you know, because they they clearly were coming to the courtroom, had no interest in what was going on. And this lady had had died just a horrific death. Um, but yeah. yeah, juries pick up on that. They see you texting. So no, no, no wordle. wordle. <laughs> That's right. They see you wordling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
Um, um, guys, well, thank you so much for 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 giving us your time and, and sharing your knowledge, especially with Jed, who's got emotions for summary judgment hearing tomorrow. Thanks, yeah. Jed. He's been awesome. 100% focused on this podcast, and that's, yeah. that's been appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've, been, we've enjoyed it as always, and I'm looking forward to you guys getting back at it. And I mean, I think it's been a great, yeah, it's a great service. I mean, it's part of what we do as trial lawyers to try to learn from other people's work and teach other people. So let's thank you so much, Jeff. Well, we, I'm really yeah. appreciative of having two partners coming back to the practice of law. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I should, I should have said yeah, at the beginning that not only, not only are they great trial lawyers, but they also allow us to do this podcast and take some time away so from, uh, so from practice. Just allows Yvonne to spend more time with her dog. I mean, she's free <laughs> up a couple hours. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, wow. Nasha is doing great. We've talked about Nasha a lot yeah, on the well, show. I'm so, uh, yeah. Um, and I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you, Jeff, what your favorite episode was uh, of the podcast. Uh, 32, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. 30, 32 is definitely one of my favorites and 46 is always is up there. <laughs> but I mean, the, you know, the two through seven episodes, I always felt were pretty strong. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's hard to pick. <laughs> um I do want to say to our listeners that we are taking a break for a little while, but stick with us. We will be coming back, and uh, and and uh, we have certainly appreciated everybody who's uh, reached out about the show and and how much they enjoy it. But we um, we're just going to take a little break for a while, and we'll be back um, next year. So, um, See anyways, next year. thank you guys. Great work, thank guys. y'all. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining, and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website yeah so check those out if you have a trial you would like to be featured on the great trials podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us please email us at info at great Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time, and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.